0: DW, World in Progress,
1: with Sarah Steffen.
2: Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. The International Criminal Police Organization, Interpol, turns 100 this year. Time to look at how it's helped make our world safer from crimes such as money laundering, cyber attacks and child abuse, to name just a few, by catching global perpetrators. And where its so-called red notices have helped authoritarian regimes clamp down on the innocent.
3: If a country wanted to use the red notice system for persecutory reasons, they wouldn't spell it out in their requests with a red notice that you know it's politically motivated. Often it's going to be disguised as a non-political offence, like fraud or something like that.
2: Human rights organizations have also long criticized how states can essentially trap dissidents by simply declaring their passports lost or stolen by using Interpol's database. Turkey reportedly did exactly that following the coup attempt in 2016 with hundreds of thousands of passports. Reporter Tony Neumann sent us this deep dive into Interpol's past, present and future and sheds light on the good, the bad and the ugly. Neil King has this report.
1: It's called Operation Jackal. Agent Rory Corcoran, a financial crime expert, is showing me a video at Interpol's fortress-like headquarters in Lyon, France. In the video, police, coordinated by Interpol, can be seen storming a house in South Africa. Corcoran tells me about how the agency is combating a new mafia-like gang threatening people across the world. Its name, Black Axe. By dealing with a number of countries, including Germany, we identified a common threat in these countries where a profile of young Nigerian males were involved in crimes such as business email compromise and romance frauds. They had a strong base in South Africa a number of months ago. We conducted a number of searches there. We seized a number of properties as well with the American and South African authorities. Interpol's operation was successful, But the agency is also facing a lot of criticism from human rights activists, says Alexis Thierry. He works for MENA Rights Group, which is based in Geneva.
3: We worked on the case of a Chinese national, an ethnic Uyghur. His name is Idris Hassan. He was living in Turkey since 2012, after leaving China, and he felt that he was not safe anymore in Turkey He booked a plane. The only ticket he could get was to Morocco. He flew from Istanbul to Casablanca and he was arrested on the basis of a red notice requested by China. And then there was a whole process of extradition that began. So this was in the 20th of July, 2021, and he was arrested.
1: Hassan was one of the Uyghur activists who escaped China, where the ethnic minority faces persecution. He was arrested with the help of Interpol and is currently awaiting extradition in Morocco, where he remains in custody. Alexis Thierry says Interpol is aiding dictators.
2: Interpol is a truly global organization working to turn back crime.
1: Interpol is often portrayed by Hollywood as a group of agents armed to the teeth and jetting around the globe. But the agency is in fact very different. One hundred years ago, at a time when crime was flourishing across Europe in the aftermath of the First World War, representatives from 20 European law enforcement agencies came together in Vienna. There, they founded the International Criminal Police Commission, or the ICPC, a commission tasked with exchanging information in the fight against international crime. As early as 1933, ICPC headquarters in Vienna had at their disposal more than 3,000 index cards with the names of safe-busters, counterfeiters, people who trafficked drugs and women, murderers and scammers. But the ICPC's operations quickly came to a standstill in 1938 when its headquarters were transferred to Berlin with the annexation of Austria by Nazi Germany. A man named Reinhard Heydrich became its president. Heydrich was deputy to Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS. By 1946, the International Crime-Fighting Organization had come back to life in Paris under the new name of Interpol – Over time, law enforcement agencies from 195 countries joined. The only countries that are missing are North Korea and several Pacific Island nations. Jürgen Stock has been Secretary General of Interpol since 2014. Back in Lyon, where Interpol has been headquartered since 1989, Stock tells me that trust is the basis of collaboration among police from various political and cultural backgrounds.
4: There's a common understanding across the world that police officers are part of a profession, a transnational profession, whose goal is essentially to keep society safe or make it safer. And there's a consensus that police officers across the globe basically have the same interest in capturing murderers, drug dealers, child abusers or human traffickers. And all of that has a lot to do with trust that develops through meetings organised by Interpol. But it's also related to a set of rules everyone who works with us has to follow.
5: Two
1: things that are strictly regulated are the protection of sensitive data and, above all, respecting national sovereignty. The thousands of people who work for Interpol do not have executive powers. Interpol is seen as a platform and a coordination unit – The organization collects data on criminals and criminal suspects through DNA, fingerprints, facial recognition and streaming child abuse. It also collects data via stolen passports, cars, works of art and weapons. And law enforcement agencies in member states can access almost all of these types of data by using Interpol's secure data network. It receives up to 8 billion data inquiries a year. Apart from that, Interpol experts help analyse the tracks left behind by criminals. They also help coordinate international operations, targeting criminal gangs and train policemen and women across the globe. Without a doubt, Interpol's work was and remains vital. 100 years ago, it was indispensable in the fight against more traditional gangsters. And today, it's indispensable in fighting terrorism and new forms of crime made possible by the Internet like the sexual violation of children, without bodily contact between victim and perpetrator. Uri Sadeh is an Israeli human rights lawyer. He works with the Interpol unit Crimes Against Children. He points out that there are still
5: countries without any laws against this type of Internet crime. In many cases, we have the whole crime committed online with a perpetrator, an offender, getting in touch with a child and abusing them online for often first by tricking them into sharing some material, some nudity, thinking they're talking to someone their age, uh, or not understanding the gravity of it, and then the offender can immediately turn back and start blackmailing the victim, threatening to distribute the material he already has to their contacts on the social media, to families, on websites, and this brings the victim into a cycle of being becoming the slave of this offender, even if they sit in different countries and different regions of the world. The numbers Sade is talking
1: about are in the millions. The police can't handle it on their own, he says. It's the IT industry that needs to protect its platforms, identify images of child abuse with the help of artificial intelligence, block the streaming of these images, and expose the perpetrators. As Sade sees it, this fight is an international one victims and perpetrators often live in different countries, as happened in a case not all that
5: long ago. With a force in a different country becoming aware of a potential link of a kidnapping that happened in Russia to a child abuse forums and to child sexual exploitation activity. And, in fact, Interpol could come in here and liaise between a few member countries to pull together evidence through this cooperation, we were able to slowly find details that led the Russian investigators to an isolated house where this child was already held for around a month and a half. A video put
1: online by Interpol shows the storming of the hut and the child being rescued. Interpol's Secretary-General Jürgen Stock tells me that cybercrime is growing at a similarly rapid rate as online child abuse. There are malware attacks that paralyze entire companies, online pyramid schemes that promise money fast, money laundering with the help of cryptocurrencies. There's also stalkerware, spyware that ruins people both emotionally and financially. Wir
4: haben Im Cybercrime ja vor One or two years ago, we were talking about a parallel pandemic of cybercrime, and rightly so. Criminals worldwide were shamelessly exploiting these new vulnerabilities that emerged from the pandemic. For example, remote work and the gaps in IT security. Countries that had to advertise aid programs very quickly, that set up websites that weren't necessarily secure and then were attacked immediately. Instances where money was funneled off. So a variety of fake medication, fake disinfectant. Everything under the sun was there at once. And this type of crime is going to grow.
1: Stock fears that cybercrime will soon cause 10 billion euros a year in damages. That's also why Interpol has set up a cybercrime centre in Singapore. But Stock sees business as the one with the obligation to act because countries are lacking the means to fight Internet crime effectively, like with online child abuse. Important decisions, for instance, on cooperation with the corporate sector, are taken at the General Assembly of Interpol's member agencies. They convene behind closed doors. Interpol is not subject to political oversight, in contrast to its regional counterpart, Europol. The General Assembly elects 13 people to the Executive Committee, which is overseen by the Secretary-General. The committee, in turn, elects the President, and with less than positive results in recent years. In 2004, South African Jackie Silebi was elected, only to be sentenced in 2010 to 15 years for corruption. Chinese National Meng Hongwei was elected in 2016. He was arrested two years later on corruption charges. Ahmed Nasser al raisi has been Interpol's president since 2021. al rasi is also the United Arab Emirates inspector general for the Ministry of the Interior, which oversees the country's prisons. According to independent investigations, there are many prisoners in the United Arab Emirates who have been jailed for political reasons, and torture is commonplace there. According to those same investigations, al raisi has not intervened, even though it falls under his jurisdiction which raises the question of how this man from a country that tortures prisoners was elected president of Interpol. One possibility could be explained by the agency's finances. It has an annual budget of roughly 150 million euros, and only about 60% of that is financed by payment in kind and member state contributions. These contributions were not raised between 2001 and 2020. Interpol defrays one portion of these costs through voluntary donations, which often come at the risk of introducing a conflict of interest. For example, a little over a decade ago, Interpol had partnerships with tobacco company Philip Morris, the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly, and Sanofi, and also with FIFA, which has come to embody corruption. Even the Secretary-General admits it hasn't been a glorious chapter for Interpol.
4: Right after I took office, I put a stop to all private donations. One example is FIFA. Interpol was receiving significant donations from them several years ago. We put a stop to this and we gave back the rest of the money. We did that with other private
1: donors too. Jürgen Stock has been able to replace the private donors. Today, Interpol's largest donor is the EU Commission, closely followed by the Interpol Foundation for a Safer World, which is financed solely by the United Arab Emirates. Interpol's fortress-like headquarters in Lyon are an information hub. The national central bureaus connect member states. They're part of Interpol's infrastructure, but they are made up of police from the member states and they are subject to their own country's laws. Notices, or a request for assistance from a member state, is an important tool at Interpol. The red notices, which are international alerts for a wanted person, are used the most frequently. But they can't be used for crimes committed in military, religious or racist conflicts. The same goes for political crimes. And since 2017, red notices can no longer be issued for people with refugee status. Insiders say Interpol's alerts have been successful. They've led to the arrests of thousands of dangerous criminals. That includes Mafia bosses wanted for decades. But one big problem is that a number of authoritarian states use them to track down political opponents. Human rights activists have accused above all Russia, Turkey, China and a number of Arabic states of doing exactly this but they justify their actions by saying the request for Interpol's help are for non-political crimes like terrorism, fraud or child abuse. It's currently unknown how many of Interpol's international alerts have been politically motivated, but human rights organizations have taken up numerous cases. The President of the World Uyghur Congress, Dolkun Isa, currently lives in Germany. There was an Interpol red notice out on him for 21 years. It wasn't until 2018 that it was lifted. Hakim al-Arabi, a Bahrainian man with refugee status in Australia, was held in extradition custody in Thailand in 2018 for 76 days. The reason? Bahrain used Interpol to look for him. And Muhidin Kabiri, the head of Tajikistan's opposition party, currently lives in Germany. He fled his homeland in 2015.
0: They announced our party as a terrorist organization and all my deputies was arrested, leadership of party, and that time of course I was abroad and they put my name in Interpol in so, beginning of 2016 my name was in Interpol.
1: The alert wasn't removed until 2019. Kabiri says there are around five thousand politically persecuted Tajiks living today in Europe. Many of them are wanted by Interpol without their knowledge. Professor Edward Lemon originally hails from the UK. He's the president of the Oxus Society for Central Asian Affairs in Washington, DC. This is how he explains it.
6: Tajikistan is a relatively small, poor country of around 9 million people in Central Asia, just the north of Afghanistan, and yet they've issued over 2,000 red notices, many for members of the leading opposition party in the country that was banned in 2015. And So, an example of a country that we would think of as being small and weak, but ultimately a country that's used transnational repression through Interpol and through bilateral and multilateral agreements with countries like Russia to return dozens, hundreds of people at this point over the past decade or so.
1: Even in cases when it's clear that the red notice warrant on someone is politically motivated and that this person will not be extradited, it can be a huge risk for them to cross a border. The US, for example, is one of the countries that regularly carries out these arrest warrants issued via Interpol and sometimes keeps people in custody for years. Sandra Grossman is a lawyer based in Washington DC who represents defendants who've been subjected to unjustified Interpol warrants. She says a red notice should actually not be a reason for arrest in the U.S. But even if the person in question enters the U.S. on a valid visa, the U.S. often invalidates the visa based on the Interpol alert.
7: The procedure is that ICE will issue a charging document against them alleging an immigration violation, and then the individual has to go before an immigration judge and plead a defense to removal like asylum or protection under the Convention Against Torture. And of course, that person cannot be removed or deported until an immigration judge has heard their claim.
1: The victim often remains in custody for years if he or she can't pay a bail of up to 100,000 US dollars. According to Grossman's estimation, the US alone puts away several hundred foreigners based on unjustified Interpol alerts each year. Regardless, the US and other democratic countries don't extradite victims of political persecution. But, as Professor Edward Lemon notes, that's not always the objective of a red notice. Terrorising dissidents living abroad is enough for many dictators, he says. Having a red notice doesn't merely
6: mean that you're in danger of being extradited, but it means that it's difficult to open a bank account, it can be difficult to get a job, it can cause problems that you can't travel to different parts of the world. You couldn't transit through Istanbul, for example, which is a key point to get to different parts of the world, or transit through the United Arab Emirates or Qatar. Because if you try to do that, then you would be in danger of being detained, so it makes your life difficult, as well as undermining your credibility and allowing the government to say that this individual is wanted by Interpol, they're a criminal, and so it can discredit figures who are operating in anti-corruption roles in civil society and legitimate political opposition. So it's really an important symbolic tool to discredit opposition members.
1: Experts call this misuse of international institutions transnational repression – along with assassinations, blackmail, spying on smartphones and computers, as well as taking family members hostage who've been left behind. The message from dictators to their opponents is clear – wherever you go, we will punish you. Interpol Secretary-General Jürgen Stock is aware that the arrest warrants are an invitation to abuse the system. That's why Stock started a task force in 2016, made up of 30 to 40 people who are tasked with reviewing red notices before they're released.
4: We get roughly 11 to 14,000 requests every year. 95% of these are fine. They have to do with categories that are related without a doubt to general criminality or terrorism. We have a quota of roughly 5% of cases where we have to have intense involvement in order to ensure that the
1: request is not about a political matter. But Stock doesn't explain to me exactly how his task force is able to categorise 95% of these requests for a warrant as unproblematic right away. After all, it's likely the dictatorships go to great lengths to ascribe fake crimes to political opponents in a detailed and coherent
4: manner. Extensive documentation of the case must be presented for us to consider it. In many cases, we go back to the member states before we release anything and say, this isn't enough, we need more information, etc. We take this process very seriously. But one thing we aren't is a supranational court, so to speak, that would subject a line of argument to judicial review, for example, when it comes to a decision made at
1: the national level. Stock says Interpol's review board is not a court of law. His task force is only able to review red notices based on their plausibility. Nevertheless, the task force makes decisions like a court without reviewing the evidence itself or even hearing from the accused. And that's a highly questionable procedure, says Bruno Min, who heads the British human rights organisation Fair Trials.
3: If a country wanted to use the red notice system for persecutory reasons, they wouldn't spell it out in their request for the red notice that you know it's politically motivated. Often it's going to be disguised as a non-political offence like fraud or something like that. We're assuming that Interpol doesn't really have very much information to work out whether the allegations that the state is making are genuine or if they're politically motivated, especially in the absence of a particular public profile that this particular individual might have.
1: That's also because the people who review the red notices regularly face dilemmas and are racing against the clock. There could be real murderers, human traffickers or terrorists that are getting away – Individual cases show the holes in Interpol's system of review. A man named Selahuddin Gülen, the nephew of Turkish opposition leader Fethullah Gülen, who was arrested in Kenya 2020. The arrest was based on an Interpol alert, issued at Turkey's behest for alleged child abuse. Gülen was extradited. The political activist Ahmed Jafar Mohammed Ali from Bahrain was arrested in Belgrade on November 3rd, 2021, because of a red notice. Less than three months later, he was extradited to Bahrain aboard a private jet in violation of a court order from the European Court of Human Rights. Marco Stambuk is a lawyer with the Belgrade Center for Human Rights. Stambuk says he doesn't understand how his client ended up on the Interpol search list to begin with. On the other hand, British human rights activist Bruno Min doesn't understand how Idris Hassan, the Uyghur activist mentioned earlier in this story, could have been arrested based on a red notice in 2021.
3: If we can think of some of the most serious human rights challenges in the world at the moment, you would think of, you know, what's happening in Xinjiang. Uyghur people and the ways in which kind of terrorism laws are being manipulated against members of the Uyghur communities. In Hassan's case, I think he was very easily identifiable, I think, as a Chinese national of Uyghur origin. The fact that Interpol would have nevertheless kind of looked at the request from China and simply kind of assumed that it was legitimate, that was particularly concerning and it really highlighted the weaknesses in the systems that we're talking about.
1: There is also another way dictators use Interpol to terrorise their opponents living in exile. Interpol's databank of stolen and lost documents. It's a tool that the Turkish government, for example, seems to have made use of. In 2019, the Nordic Research Monitoring Network published explosive documents belonging to Turkish intelligence. According to these documents, Turkey declared several hundred thousand passports lost or stolen following the attempted coup in 2016, and then uploaded this information to the Interpol databank. Marko Stambuk of the Belgrade Centre for Human Rights oversees cases involving Turkish nationals who are stranded in Serbia without a passport
0: by doing this turkish government tries to persecute its opponents its critics who do not even live in turkey and in a transnational way meaning that these persons when they stay without their travel documents they have problems moving they have tr- problems traveling they have problems living abroad, as without a travel document, you cannot apply for uh, a temporary residence. And the only answer these people would get from their embassy was just return to Turkey, nothing else. Some of them even initiated uh, procedures back in Turkey in order to find out why their passports were in this database but they, they wouldn't get any answer either.
1: So how can people protect themselves from this kind of abuse of Interpol? It's probably not possible when it comes to the data bank of lost and stolen documents, because only the governments that have uploaded their data can delete it. And suing Interpol won't work either. Both the organization and its employees have immunity in France. So, the only option left to fight back against a red notice is to turn to the CCF, the Commission for the Control of Interpol's Files. The Commission is elected by the General Assembly, but it works independently from them. And as of 2017, their decisions are considered binding. But the CCF convenes behind closed doors. It's possible to submit documents to the CCF, but people don't have a right to a hearing. Moreover, it's not possible to view a red notice record without the consent of the government that requested it. The commission is required to adhere to deadlines, and it must also justify its rulings. But an appeal is only possible in rare exceptions. Washington-based lawyer Sandra Grossman explains that proceedings aren't usually pursued before the CCF unless the search request has served its purpose and the person in question is in prison. She says most of her experiences with the commission have been positive.
7: We have found that in general, the commission does a pretty good job of reviewing our filings and issuing decisions in favor of our clients. So, you know, we've had a few cases where the CCF has gone back to the member country to ask them if they would be releasing the charges, and the member country hasn't been. And then the CCF has come back to us and said that they won't give us a copy of the red notice, which is highly problematic because, you know, one of the sort of basic principles in due process is that in order to be able to defend yourself, you have to know what the charges against you are.
1: Interpol Secretary General Jürgen Stock has strengthened the CCF considerably. Anyone can find out if Interpol has collected any of their data. The commission also collects information from human rights organizations. Stock says this is a decisive way to push back against any abuse of Interpol's instruments used to find people.
4: We also have certain mechanisms that are triggered when we see, for example, that a particular country has a high number of cases that don't comply with regulations. We have a range of possibilities the secretary-general can utilize – all the way to completely excluding a member state from the exchange of
1: information. It's a powerful tool that's rarely used, because Interpol could inadvertently hurt itself in the process. Plus, every time a country is excluded from exchanging information, it carries the risk of creating loopholes for dangerous criminals. To this day, there are only two countries Interpol has done this to – Syria from 2012 to 2021 and Afghanistan in 2021. Meanwhile, critics are demanding more transparency and rule of law than ever in the transnational fight against crime. The European Parliament and the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe have released critical reports. The US Congress has passed the TRAP Act in a bid to crack down on these abuses of Interpol warrants. But none of this changes the root of the problem. The way Interpol is structured invites abuse by dictators. When it comes down to it, Interpol is an organization of law enforcement agencies appointed outside of the political system. It's an organization that weighs and ultimately makes decisions on state security versus personal liberty. Which begs the question, does it really have the right to do that?
2: Neil King with that report by Tony Neumann. That's our show. The studio team was Wiebke Tegtmeier and Thomas Schmidt. I'm Sarah Steffen saying thanks for listening and bye for now.